hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Aitchison Labar, and I am the forum program coordinator over at 154. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, first, I'll quickly introduce what 154 is. I'm sure many of you have been to the fair already and seen the spectacular artwork that is over there. And for those of you that don't know, it's a great way for me to introduce what 154 is and what we're about. So 154 is the first and only international art fair dedicated to contemporary art from Africa and its diaspora. With three editions per year in London, New York, and Marrakesh, and a pop-up fair in Paris, the name of the fair, 154, draws reference to the 54 countries that constitute the African continent. So today, I am very happy to be joined by Lewis Long and Dinga McCannon. And unfortunately, our forum curator, Novella Ford, wasn't unable to join us uh, just, just today. So I will be introducing her curatorial vision and introducing the session, and we'll get straight into the session. So. 154 Forum 2022 Harlem Lineage is titled, We Shall Not Always Plant While Others Reap. This year's 154 Forum takes its inquiry from Harlem Renaissance writer, County Cullen, and his poem, From the Dark Tower, where he writes, We Shall Not Always Plant While Others Reap. Cullen acknowledges it's uh, a legacy of black labor that has not always benefited communities directly connected to and impacted by that labor. We will root current ideas and creative production by artists of African descent within a lineage of black political, cultural, and intellectual engagement that has cultivated a present-day black cultural renaissance. This exploration situates Harlem's historical relevance to the interlocking histories of people of African descent with the spirit of famed Harlem Renaissance salons that offered a cross-pollination of ideas between artists, academics, and independent scholars, entertainers, and critics. Today's session, as I mentioned earlier, is with Lewis Long of the Long Gallery Harlem, who's very kindly given us his space today, and Dinga McCannon. Uh, this session is titled Textiles and the Global P Politic of the Black Arts Movement a conversation with Harlem-born fiber artist Dinga McCannon and the art collector and gallerist Lewis Long will explore the influence of McCannon's Harlem upbringing, the politics that gave way to the creation of the Weusi Artist Collective and where we at Black Women Artists Incorporated and the enduring uh, use of textiles in art making today. And thank you very much, everyone, for coming today. And I will open the floor to Lewis and Dinga. Thank you. Thank you, sir. First of all, I'd like to welcome everyone to Long Gallery Harlem. We've been here since 2012. Uh, we initially were uh, the Soul Studio. Um, many of you have been with us from the over the journey from the Soul Studio to the Long Gallery Harlem in 2016. But thank you Hi. for joining us today. Um, I, before we get into this, first of all, I want to thank 154 for, one, coming to Harlem. I think it's very important that they have their presence here. I am really excited personally because in 2013, when, not long after I opened the gallery, I went to London to the Freeze Art Fair, and I had an opportunity to have a private, intimate, um, engagement with the uh, first edition of 154 at Somerset House. And so 
Uh, this is a kind of like a full circle moment of sorts. And I also believe it's somewhat of a homecoming for 154, although they've never been here before, the spirit of what they're about in terms of the diaspora and the excellence in terms of visual arts and empowerment that they're seeking to achieve is really very Harlem, okay? And so really excited about that and thank you. And so with that said, you know, the Long Gallery Harlem has really sought to introduce new visual artists to New York and visual artists that otherwise would not have access to this, to, to a white box, so to speak. And, 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 and I had the opportunity went during that same visit to meet the, the phenom contemporary artist, Mark Bradford, where Mark Bradford at the time said, you didn't tell me when you, we had done a, a, a private viewing of his White Cube show. He said, you didn't tell me you had a gallery. At the time, I was a corporate exec, and so I was moonlighting, and I didn't tell anyone I had a gallery. And so I said to him, well, I don't really think of it much as a gallery. He's like, well, guess what? What you're doing is so important. It's so important to the representation and access for black artists that you really need to lean into that. So I quit my job, and three months later, I was doing this full time in January 2014. And, 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 and since that time, we have tried to provide this place as a platform for artists of color to be introduced into the New York art scene. And that is not just showing these beautiful works on the wall, but it's really about introducing them, which means placing them in collections, private collections, public collections, and then also producing archives or catalogs that could go into archives of documentation. And so something that we did from the start is that we created catalogs for artists that we'd show. And so there was evidence of them having been here, but also evidence of them having had this first exhibition. And I say that because while I had the privilege to be able to do that and the resources to do that in 2013, Dinga did not have that over the course of her career. And over the course of the last 50 years, things have changed and things have changed quite a bit. And we'll get into that. But before we do that, I do need to do two, three quick acknowledgements. First, the work in the front of the gallery, excuse me, the wallpaper in the gallery is by an artist, Ron Norsworthy. He was in exhibition here last summer. It was his first exhibition in New York City. So it followed the theme of what we do. Preston Sampson was shown here in 2013. And so he's back again now. That's the work in the front of the gallery. Here we have another artist by the name of James Terrell. He's also from Washington, DC. He's a Parsons grad. He's also a graduate of United Theological Seminary and also a Howard University graduate. And so really excited to present his work. And then last but certainly not least, and I save him for last, one, because he's here today, but also because his work is here as you can see here on the right, but his work is also in the window. And he's had, that's a commissioned portrait of Adam Clayton Powell. And this is an unveiling of that for Adam Clayton Powell on Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard. Most people don't know of his legacy, but I think he's captured him very well. And Nicholas, would you please stand for a moment? Give him a round of applause. And then you're also joined by your dad and your brother. So if they would also stand and say hello. 
So very pleased with his work, but, um, and thank you for being here today. And so we're going to jump right into it, because I set the stage, and there was an important moment in 2020. Dinga. Everyone's like, where have you been? Like, where's your work come from? We don't know about you. And she's been doing the work, paying her dues, and just creating amazing art. And guess what? Like, light always shines through, right? Because the moment that I became familiar, really familiar with her work, I'd seen her in Harlem, but like... When they did the Johnson Publishing Company sale of their art collection in 2020, the work that was the signature work for that collection sale was none other than Dinga's work. It was vibrant. It is colorful. It is exciting. And it set records, okay? So... Let is, let's clap, and, and, and I want to I wanna read a little bit about her background before I jump in, but she's going to talk to us about what that moment meant. Born in New York City and raised in Harlem and the Bronx, Dinga came of age as an artist and young mother during the rise of feminist art in New York City and the civil rights movement across the nation. Dinga began her career studying under Harlem Renaissance artists such as Jacob Lawrence, Charles Alston, Richard Mayhew, and Al Loving at the Art Studios League of New York City and the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop. She went on to become a pillar of the influential African-American art collective, Wayusi, and later a co-founder of Where We At Black Women Artists, a noteworthy collective affiliated with the black arts movement. Throughout Dinga's career, she created space for her own artistic exploration while building a support network for generations of black artists to follow. McKenna's work is in the public collections of the Brooklyn Museum, the Studio Museum in Harlem, Michigan State University, and the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, among others. Her work has been included in recent exhibitions, We Wanted a Revolution, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 1985, organized by the Brooklyn Museum. 1965, 1985, organized by the Brooklyn Museum. And Black Power at the National Civil Rights Muse Museum, Memphis, Tennessee, and Felix X Presents Dinga. We have Dinga here today, and she's going to talk to us about what that meant. What did that moment mean in 2020 when the swan auction of the Johnson Publishing Company collection with your work as the signature work to, to signal to the world the brilliance of the collection, but not only that, some of the untold treasures that were there. Okay. So let me tell you the story. <laughs> First, a little bit of history about that painting. Um, Johnson Publications was in, in Chicago. Somewhere in the early 70s, they decided to buy Black Art for their collection, and they purchased that particular piece. Um, when I would get to Chicago, I would go visit the piece. It was on the fifth floor in the ladies' lounge. Uh, then, back to the moment that he talked about in 2020, somebody called me up and they said, Dinga, do you know that your work of yours is on the catalog of Swan Gallery? 
auction house? I said, I don't. And so they sent me the information. And I said, oh, really? So I decided, since they were going to have an auction with all the work, that I was going to go down there myself and see what this was all about. So I go to the auction. And one of my friends, the same woman who had called me to inform me that my piece was on the cover of uh, all the advertising and everything. So we went down there, and my piece was, ooh, maybe it was number 80 or 90, but we sat through every, all the auctions and all of that. So when it came to my piece, they started bidding, and I'm sitting there, and the price kept going up, been up, been up, been up. I said, um, if I were a weaker woman, I would have fainted. <laughs> um, it was a really, it, the price, I think it may have been 180, 180,000, something like that, the type of money I had never seen in my lifetime. And the sad thing is, because of the laws here in, New, in, um, in uh, the states in particular, except for California, once you sell a piece of work, to a collector, to your friend, to whatever, when they resell it, there's no law in place to make sure that you get a, a part of that sale, except in California. In the 80s, myself and some artists from the Lower East Side had tried to start a movement to change that, but it never went anywhere. So anyhow, um, I was kind of floored, and I got over it, sort of. And then, although I didn't get a penny of that sale, what did happen is that suddenly the, the outer art world, as I call it, figured out, you know, well, this woman must be important. Somebody likes her. Somebody's <laughs> paying all this money, so she must be somebody. And after that, galleries began calling me, so forth and so on. However, uh, most of the galleries that called me, they were interested in work like that which sold, but I'm a multifaceted artist, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed into that period. That was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of work since then. So um, I finally found a gallerist who could work with myself and my various incarnations, and that's the Friedman Gallery, and that's who I'm with at this point in time. So. Yeah. Awesome. So when you, when, I want to go back to when you, when the work was actually sold. Mm -hmm. And so what was the process, or who did you sell? What was the kind of, were you with a gallery that, that where they bought the work? How did you mm -hmm. get connected with the folks at Johnson? Was it Eunice? Was it John? Like, that was over 50 years ago. Okay, 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 I don't okay. Remember. You don't remember. Okay. All I know is <laughs> that sorry. they bought a body of work. Okay. And probably that body of work was the body of work that you saw at Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, over the course of time, you have your 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 career has 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 transitioned and your practice has transitioned. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about how your practice has transitioned and you know, take us through kind of what kind of work you were making then okay. to what kind of work you're making now. Okay. And how I, that evolved. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. I started out as a painter printmaker. Um I kind of evolved into doing fabric art because as an artist, as you know, the survival issue. And I had found that wearable art, I could sell that more easily than paintings, so I began to do wearable art, as well as paintings, as well as printmaking. I went on to publish some of the first uh, black books for our children, 
And that was uh, 1972 and three and four, before a whole lot of people today. And at that time, um, the major American publishers, they didn't publish black books. And when I asked them why, they said, because we don't read. And I said, well, who are you talking to? But what, the, what it was is that not that we don't read, but the publishers did not understand there was money that black people do read and do want to see books with their reflection of themselves. And they were too lazy to figure out marketing because out of the five books that I published, what would happen is I would buy most of them and then I was selling art all across the country so I was able to sell the books and the, the majority of the books kind of died in the warehouse. So, of course, several years after that, then people began publishing black books and found that it was, yes, this is a very lucrative market. Um, I think in between that, I spent time at Bob Blackburn's workshop. Bob Blackburn was a very unique human being. He was an incredible artist. And I found out just recently that he had had the Blackburn printmaking workshop. He started that in 1947. I thought that was amazing. Mm. And it continues to this day. I'm also, I have a fellowship at the mm. workshop for the next year so that I can continue my print edition. And over the years, I've done painting, printmaking, writing, illustrating, murals. Um, we had, in fact, right across the street from the state office building, we had done a mural sponsored by the, the Studio Museum in 1971. I've had maybe four or five murals that I've been one of the collaborative artists. One uh, through where we had Black Women Artists was at 24 Furman Avenue. And the thing about murals that you don't understand, particularly in New, in New York, is that your mural goes up and it's up there on that wall. Sometimes it'd be up there for 10 years. And then one day you go back to visit it and it is not there. Nobody has called you, nothing. The work is just gone. So uh, we got a lot of work to be done here. And so at this point, um, I'm doing what I've always wanted to do, which is doing the type of artwork, whatever I felt like I wanted to deal with, whatever medium, I now have the freedom to do that, and that's what I'm doing. So. And so do you have a solo exhibition planned for at Freeman? Um, I had a solo exhibition there last year. Mm -hmm. uh, my next solo exhibition, well, actually, it's down here at 154. Yeah. And then the next one is at Pippi's in uh, London in October. So, Pippi, uh, I think it's Hound's Tooth Gallery. Yeah, in London in, in October. Yeah. Awesome. So talk to me about, you were born and raised in Harlem. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about the influence of Harlem on your development and your practice as an artist? Okay, the first thing that happened, <laughs> I was born and raised in Harlem, uh, and this is the early 60s, and I had this dream, I have no idea why, that I was gonna be an artist. I must have been maybe 10, 11 years old, and of course my family was horrified. 
Uh, <laughs> however, what happened was uh, by the time I had gotten to high school, that summer I couldn't find a paying job, so I ended up volunteering for the American Red Cross, who sent me to a school right here, I think it was on 120th Street. The director at that time uh, understood that I was an artist. He gave me my first teaching job, and also he told me that there were these artists right across the street here, ACP and the project, 129th Street, and they were having an exhibition every weekend on Saturday. So, of course, the next Saturday I was there. That The people and the artists who were there, they are the group that eventually became the Way You See Artist Collective, which is still alive and functioning. We are having an, exhibi an exhibition at Calabar June 18th for the month of June. And what happened was, um, because he sent me over there, I met all of these black artists and artists who understood what I was trying to do. They kind of embraced me, because at the time I was 17. They embraced me. They began to teach me all kinds of things about art, not only like the technical stuff, but where do you get your paint? How do you frame a painting? How do you stretch a canvas? So that's basically where my first education became came from. And then uh, as far as most of my career, I've been to a lot of countries in the world and a lot of different places, but 125th Street is still my most favorite street on the whole wide world. Um, it is, and thanks. A lot of my work deals with Harlem because I love this place so much. I have the Harlem Women's Series, I have a 125th Street series, and Harlem visually is just such an inspiration. You walk on 125th Street, you see colors, you see people, some of them are acting up, some of them are normal, but it's so visual, it just, it's just an amazing place to be, even in this day and time. When I have time, and I think last year for my birthday, People said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I'm going to 125th Street. I'm going to sit on the corner. I'm going to get me a fish sandwich. And I'm just going to watch the show. And I had a ball. Watch and watch the show, because you it know, show. It, it's a show. It's so show. yeah. And as an artist, you'll never run out of inspiration, because you can sit there and just take pictures mentally or actually physically. And there's always compositions. There's always people in wonderful, colorful outfits. So there's a lot of inspiration still to be gotten out of this community. So, so, so talk to me about your process in, in making work then. Because you mentioned photographs. Do you create from your mind's eye? Do you create from photography? Do you create from live models and live settings? Like how do you, how do you kind of process kind of the environment to create your works? All right, well, one of my main themes of it in Harlem is the lives of African-American women and the celebration of them. Um, take, for example, I did a piece of Maya Angelou, and what I did was uh, I researched her life, I did a lot of reading, and then I just, I basically kind of make a very, very vague sketch of where I want to go, and then I start the work. Uh, my process is very organic. I don't like to plan anything because it bores me if I know what it's going to look like at the end. I want to be excited and just the, 
challenge of, okay, you had this idea, it's on the paper, it's on the cloth, now what, where are you gonna go? How are you gonna make this successful? To me, that makes it challenging and that invigorates me. And like, I never know what it's gonna look like, but I have this faith that it's gonna be fine, whatever it's gonna look like. And I kind of work like that. Um, I like to draw still. Um, I guess sometimes I will sit out and it's always vague. I, I'll do a little drawing like Maya Angela. I drew her face about 50 times. Mm. And then the face that I ended up with, I basically kind of created it because I didn't really want to go for a photographic look from her because anybody can do that. I tried to get what her spirit was talking about. So that's it. Did you get that piece? No? Which one did you get? Yeah, she's... Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. This is... We go way, way back. Yeah. So yeah, so that's basically my process. Nice. Now, there, we mentioned the WUC collection, I mean collective. Mm -hmm. um, what, what set the stage for us in terms of how that developed mm -hmm. and why it developed and what were the conditions that required it and made it necessary to do? Okay, the conditions that made that necessary in 1965 was that as black people, we uh, lacked the art form or uh, not lacked the art form, but we weren't recognized. And it was a major problem because one of the reasons I didn't go to school, a proper school, was because I always had these fights with the teachers. You shouldn't be painting black people. You're supposed to be doing this. I didn't come here to do this. I came here to paint my people. So I decided that I was going to have to find another route of education because you don't want to go into an educational scheme and they are negating the very person that you are. When I met where you see, uh, it was at the beginning of the Black Arts Movement, and I think what we wanted to do initially was to make black art reflecting the positive values in our community, reflecting ourselves. Where you see has been together over 50 years. Um, they eventually got a building, I think it was on 137th Street, and it became the where you see Art Academy. Mm where we inter, um, we interacted with other artists, particularly uh, Ed Bullens in the New Lafayette Theater. Uh, we had classes. We had a lot of musicians come in, and people would be coming in from all over the world to talk to us, to see us. I first started my printmaking adventures there because Abdul Aziz, uh, one of our renowned artists, he was working downtown at some silkscreen place, and he came one day and he says, you know, paintings are expensive and you're dealing with an audience that may not have the money to purchase a painting, but prints can be affordable. Mm. And so he got us together and we put our money in and we bought our first press and we began to make prints. Um, I think that building was up, or we were in that building for about 10 years and then with financial issues and all of that, that had to end. And then where you see began meeting in different members' houses. Like I said, we are still together. Uh, I was the baby of the group then. I don't think I'm the baby anymore. <laughs> but uh, a lot of us are in our 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
and still the purpose is the same as it was in the 60s, is making art that's relevant, that's positive, and shows all the beautiful facets of life here and in the, the whole world. So. Do you accept new members? Hmm? Do y'all bring in new members? Oh yeah, we have to because okay. our members are dying out. Okay. Okay. And we're also, we want you know, to have younger people involved so that we can pass that legacy on. And the younger, young, um, I guess I'm getting to, are the younger, younger artists receptive and interested in being a part of it? Um, we don't have that many, but the few that we do understand the history and they definitely want to be a part of that because this is living history and within the group you have artists who are portrait artists, abstract artists, fiber artists, you have everybody there. So there's a lot to be gained and then where you see uh, has not been given uh, the renown that they deserve. So we're still working on that and I think once the the word gets out there, we're going to have a lot more young people. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's incumbent upon all of us now to spread mm -hmm. the word that mm -hmm. if you meet a young art, if you, Miss Jackson, you, you might want to look at Miss, Miss yeah. what you see, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, young artists, we have to encourage them to. Most definitely. Because yeah. we are not going to be here forever. And it's just natural to me that we want to pass on these traditions. We have a lot of knowledge in this group, a lot of stories, a lot of history, uh, and it would be a shame if it just stops with us. So the idea is to take all of this and pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. And then we didn't talk about where we at yeah. black women artists. Talk to me about how that and what the difference is between where you see and where, and where we are. Okay. Um, when we usually first started over here on the fence, there were a lot of women artists, but somehow by the time the winter came, they disappeared. And so for many years, it was just me and all my wonderful brothers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Kay Brown came to town. And what had happened was, even in the greater art world, women were not really respected or loved or embraced as artists. Sometimes you would go to apply for a gallery show and they would say, oh, you're only going to do this for a while and you're going to quit and, you know, all this madness. So what had happened was um, being a woman in a man's world, I managed to do that until I became a mother. That added another aspect onto it. So I don't remember the sequence, but it was either I call Faith or Faith call me as Faith Ringo mm -hmm. and Kay Brown, and we called each other and we said, well, we need to get the women artists together and just have a conversation. So these women came to my studio, which was on the Lower East Side at that time. It was the fifth floor walk up. There was water dripping down the walls. The halls were dark. So the women who came up there really wanted to start this conversation. And because of that first meeting, once we met, we said, okay, now what are we gonna do? We need to have an exhibition. And I um, had gotten into the Acts of Art Gallery because one of my men friends had stood up for me. That was Ellsworth Osby, who is no longer here, but he was a amazing artist. And because of that, I went to the, the director and asked him, are you interested in having an all-women show? And he was, no problem. So we had our first show. Uh, we became a collective. We actually ended up having a 501c3. 
because um, the where we at, we weren't only artists, we were businesswomen, we were writers, we were musicians. We had a really nice uh, variety of women who were interested in the arts in one form or the other. And so we stayed, we, we stayed working and uh, together for 25 years. And then in 1999, the group disbanded, so. Okay. I wanted to talk, we talked a little bit, we wanted to talk a little about textiles mm -hmm. as a medium. And, you know, everyone's, you know, I guess in recent memory has become aware of the G's Bin quilts, right? And so that might have been the most notable kind of moment of, of credibility to textiles. But it hasn't always been a widely sought after or even an art form that has been widely collected. And it's something you've worked in for a while. Talk to mm -hmm. us about like, textiles and, and what it's meant um, to try to labor and develop works and what it means to produce mm -hmm. a work of art out of textiles. Okay. Um, first thing is, you know, cloth is kind of essential to human beings. When you're born and you come out your mama's womb, they usually wrap you in a cloth. When you die, they put you in the clothing, you know, you're dressed up in some kind of cloth thing. And for, I could never figure this out, why there was such a discrimination with textile art versus painting. Because as I was telling Lewis earlier, the amount of physical labor that goes into creating a textile piece, uh, it just is a lot more than it is for a painting. It's possible to, do a painting maybe like in a month or two, but a textile work can take months, and it's hours and hours and hours of work. Uh, I used to go to Houston, who had the biggest quilt show, and they still have it in November, and I saw hundreds of quilts, thousands of classes, um, and apparently somebody was dealing with quilts, but it wasn't the greater art world. Maybe, um, now Faith, she was the exception because she, her work, a lot of her larger work is textiles and she managed to be one of the people who they allowed in and allowed to use her quilting as an art medium. Uh, one of the things may have been because traditionally it was a woman's work. And as you know, the women, in this society, we're coming into our own finally, but it's been after a whole bunch of, you know, getting the back, no, etc. cetera. So um, I'm glad to be alive when, you know, it's finally coming in. However, you know, even though the greater art world did not appreciate textiles, there were other private collectors and people who loved art who did, and they purchased our work, and that enabled us to keep working to this point. So speaking about broader acceptability then, and this is the last question, so if you can start thinking about what your questions are gonna be, I'll ask this question and we'll cut, turn it over to you. The broader art world now has you know, decided that representation matters, and maybe it's not just the art world, but it's just what's happened in society. Mm -hmm. and, and so, but what we're seeing is unprecedented interest in the works of artists of color. And evidence of that is what we talked about early on about the auction at Swan with the Johnson's collection. Uh, what do you make of this moment? Is it a moment or is it a movement? 
And if it's a movement, then what is your guidance? What is your outlook? And what might you suggest to other artists to really make the most of it? All right, well, first, um, I believe that good art is universal. That's the first thing. Um, yes, there's finally, I mean, uh, America is kind of slow on a whole bunch of stuff. And one of it is the recognition that there's diversity in art. You have all these wonderful cultures all around the world, and a lot of those cultures have been kind of ignored. They kind of pretended they didn't exist. Uh, I'm glad to be alive still at this point in time because I've seen way too many artists who worked all of their lives, who struggled, who made incredible art. And a lot of them died in poverty, mm. and they shouldn't have. So um, that being said, to the day's artists, I could say this. We have bust our butts to get to this point in time. This is a moment of opportunity for you artists who are younger. Go for it. Work at your craft. Learn as much about your craft as you possibly can. Because this may be a moment that passes, but I truly believe that good art is universal and should last forever. And even if this trend, even if we're not the trend next week, um, the fact that you're doing art, beautiful art, that should supersede whatever comes next. So, thank you. And so we have a mic that um, we'll pass around. Cam will pass around. Um, questions. Hi, so, so great to meet you. Um, wanted to ask you, which medium do you enjoy working with the most? All of them. <laughs> well, I think and, you might say that. So, you know, does it depend on the story you're, you know, you're trying to It tell? depends on the story and it depends on my mood. Sometimes I want to paint, sometimes I don't want to paint. <laughs> so, um, and I enjoy the ability to have the flexibility to do that because one of the reasons I never got picked up by a gallery is because I kept changing, you know, and I didn't want to be stuck. Like when that painting was sold, everybody wanted something that looked like that painting. Fine, but I don't want to do that. I mean, I may want to do it, but I don't want to do that all the time. I want to do these other mediums, and there's still stuff out there that I have yet to discover. So, Any other questions? Yeah, well, it's not I mean, a question, it's uh, a comment. Mm -hmm. uh, I was around when Mayusi was really into its own early in the 60s, so that's where I met Dinga, that's where I met Kay Brown, where I met all of the way you see artists. But what was going on in New York City at the time was this major art exhibit down in the village at Washington Square Park. And every year that this great, huge art exhibit took place, it was headline news. And all of the guys in Wayusi said, well, we can have our own art exhibit up here. We are not part of that one downtown. Mm -hmm. So every year at the same time, we'd have an exhibit in St. Nicholas Park. Mm -hmm. And that is where I learned to become an art collector. Mm -hmm. And I went on from there, but that's where I started, buying a little oil 
by Renee Pyatt mm. for I think it was five or ten dollars. I love it. And mm. but it was a celebration of our creativity. Mm. If nobody else recognized it, we did. Mm. And I, that's a part of the history. I mean, it's nice to see what's happening mm -hmm. at, you know, a Norman Lewis being sold at <laughs> Phillips the other day. Mm -hmm. And I'm not boasting, but yeah, I had what I didn't have that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I did find myself buying African-American art and nobody was recognizing it. Mm -hmm. Okay? only because I loved it. I was not investing. I was buying my culture and I just loved looking at it. And so I just wanted to say it was from where you see in the 60s that really got me into being interested in art. So they were not only wonderful artists, but they were also teachers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I honor them, okay? Like I honor David. <laughs> I have another question over here. Hello, um, my name is uh, Jason Wallace and I just want to say it's so refreshing to meet you and to hear your story of like how you've persevered through like all the years in terms of keeping your voice and your art form alive. And just wanted to know if you collaborated with uh, younger artists as a way of uh, introducing new spirit into your practice mm -hmm. and what's your engagement with uh, younger people because I, I think you're delightful. Thank you. Um, well, <laughs> I, I did have a teaching career and I always taught in alternative places like shelters, jails, after school centers, etc. What I'm doing personally, uh, my last major collaboration was with my son, mm. which was uh, I guess over the moon, we created a mural up in Beacon, New York at Friedman's other gallery. And uh, the mural is like, it's up now and it will not be destroyed or painted over. <laughs> uh, and it started because I've had a tradition of doing murals and I told Ilya, you know, the director, yeah, I've done murals. So he said, well, why not do a mural? So I said, okay, I get my son, because he's also a budding artist, um, to join in with me. So this mural was funny because we were supposed to go up on the wall and paint the mural, and the murals that I have done previous to, to that, uh, we actually built the scaffolding, went up on the mural, did it, you know, all the painting and everything. And it had been many years since I did that, and luckily, when I got there, the owner of the building decided that he didn't want anything on the wall. So what we did, we bought four by eight panels and we painted on those panels and then it was installed on the wall. And I was really kind of glad because I'm 70 something. What am I going to be doing up on the scaffolding? You know, so, you know, and it's, it's still up there. You can probably Google it up at Friedman. So, and then going forward, um, I, Danny Simmons has a gallery in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. I curated a show, and I don't usually do that, and it was called Generation Seven. It was seven of us who were over 65 and seven who were 50 and under. We had an exhibition, and then we sort of became unofficial mentors of those seven women who were under 50. So. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, Dinga. Hi. Um, I love the way that you use photography in your work, and I was mm -hmm. wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that photography plays in the creation, particularly in the, the quilt-like pieces. The what? The quilt-like pieces. Okay. Uh, first of all, <laughs> I'm a terrible photographer, and I sometimes I go places and I have no pictures, and sometimes I go places and all the pictures I have are buildings, but I was raised in my artistic career around a lot of like Pat Davis, who you probably don't know, Kwame Brathway, um, the group of photographers in Harlem, Adja Collins, and I love and appreciate, and I was probably one of the earliest advocates of photography is an art form. So the photographs that you saw in my, like the Hall of Memories, those were actual photographs that my family had taken right next to uh, the Victoria Theater there. There used to be a place called the Penny Arcade, and there was also Grant's on this side of the street next to Woolworths. Those were the two places that people went to have photographs taken. When my mother passed 20 years ago, I inherited a huge bag of stuff, including photographs, memorabilia, etc. And I chose uh, out of that collection photographs to put in that piece. So that's it. As a, I, I don't know. I, you never know. I might have a, a career as a photographer at some point mm -hmm. because it's all visual, it's all composition, it's all color. So the two fields are really running parallel to one another. Any more questions? Me too. Hey, girl. Hi. It's always good to see you. Um, one question uh, about your storytelling, because some of your work does do mm -hmm. that. Could you talk a little bit about when you began and how you do, when you decide to tell a story with your work as well? Mm -hmm. It kind of evolved naturally, because as you know, one of my themes is African-American women. And then um, it's one thing, like, let's go back to the Maya Angela piece. Um, not only did I have my visual interpretation of her, but I did a second piece, which is his partner, discussing or giving you the titles of some of her work. And actually, there were so many titles, I have to probably do another piece to get them all in there. And it was the same thing with like uh, Mary Lou Williams. I did a piece on her, and she's known as a pianist, and she's also known for jazz, but she did um, sacred music and several other music forms. Most people don't know that because I guess as an artist, sometimes you get typecast and people forget all the other stuff you do and you're just known for one thing. And I think it's important to know that not only were these women incredible artists in that field, but like Althea Gibson, she was not only a tennis player, she was an awesome golf person, and a lot of people don't know that. So that's where my storytelling come in. I'm trying to reveal the full person. Hmm? Yeah. No, you don't, but that's one of the reasons to do art, reflecting these women so that they'll never be forgotten. Okay. Great. Okay. Keep it going, too. Mention her again and again and again. Because, you know, um, those artists who existed before the internet, a lot of them have gotten lost because there were no records. So, like I said, just keep mentioning her. 
Okay, this will be our last question. Hi, I'm Novella Ford, and I uh, curated the 154 forums this year, and I feel like your response actually leads into the final question, which is about legacy, which is about archives. I had a second question, but I'll just stick to here. Okay. Um, as a place at the Schomburg Center where we collect archives and we make them public, and you're part of our archives, and it's amazing to have that. Um, I think about artists like Augusta Savage, who at some point did not keep an archive, and so we were lucky to have her sculptures in one of the largest collections of that, but I'm curious about um, how you think of legacy, how do you think of your archive, and, and what to put in it, and do you have any advice for um, other artists who might be thinking about how, how will this story of my work be told, and how can I have a hand in it? I think the most important thing is documentation uh, because there's a lot of my work that I have no images of and sometimes I don't even remember I did it, mm. you know, because I've done so much work and I don't have any reference for them. The documentation is important and also for those people who are collectors, it's very important that you figure out where your collection is going to go when you are no longer here because, and as also as artists, as you mature in your career, who's gonna take care of your work when you're no longer here? Because all too many times, the artist dies, the family do not care, the work goes in the garbage, or they mm. go out on the corner or sell it, or occasionally it gets to auction. So at least at auction, you know, it's still out there. So that's really, really important. Um, other than that, I think it's great for events like this where I'm able to share my story and my history because people have a way of revising your life. Mm. And like I tell people, uh, at least with me, you can always say, I told you exactly what the deal was. What they write about and all that, that's a whole, some people make stuff up. I've been a nurse and all kinds of weird things that, not weird, but just, you know, I've, I've never been a nurse. You don't want me nursing you, but I found out that I was a nurse in some interview that I read. So it's about keeping the information correct and just doing the work. Okay, mm -hmm. I lied. One more. I had a yeah, one more. Because there was such a big moment in Venice this year, and I saw you in Venice. Mm -hmm. So, what was your impression of being in Venice and the way Black women mm -hmm. artists were? their work was available to the public. I was over the moon. When I saw Simone Lee's work, because I love to work here, but when I got there, um, it was a combination of joy and pride and just seeing, and then she won the gold prize, and she deserved it because I saw a lot of that show and she put a lot of work and effort and thought, it was beautiful. And it's wonderful for me at 70-something to see artists who are 50-something coming into their own, doing their own work, and the price points. They're having careers that sustain them. That's very important. I knew very few people, even like Jacob Lawrence and Charles Austin, most of them worked through colleges. That's how they sustained themselves. But today's world is actually possible for artists to sustain themselves. Not necessarily on the scale of a Simone, but it's still, you can sustain yourself a lot more. Yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
See? And there's a show down in Washington. Oh, yeah. Tell me the title again. Afro. Uh, Afro-Atlantic histories. Yeah, Afro-Atlantic histories. Uh, I have one piece in there that was loaned to them from the Brooklyn Museum, but it's one of the most comprehensive um, exhibitions that I've ever seen. The work there is from the 1400s up till the present, and you also see uh, more of the diaspora. You have people from Brazil, people from the Spanish countries, people from Africa, plus African-Americans. And it's just a beautiful, phenomenal exhibition. And if you can get to DC, it's free to go in there. It's the National Gallery of Art. And, and if you can, I highly recommend the catalog. Yeah, that too. The book is priceless. Yeah. History. Let's give a round of applause to Dinga McCannon. Thank you, Lewis Long, for allowing us to be here. Let's give it up for Lewis. I hope you take a look. A look here in the gallery, but also going back over to Harlem Parish and visiting uh, Friedman. And you can see, actually, I think some of your Harlem Women's series is, in is, that, over, there, yeah. is over there as well. Um, there are a couple of things that were mentioned, and so I always like to connect the dots. So Faith Ringgold still has a show up at New Museum. It closes either the first or the second weekend in June. So if you get a chance, it is a glorious show. Um, and I highly recommend it. Also, you mentioned Althea Gibson. This is just a, like a side note, something that I learned. I didn't realize that Althea Gibson grew up here mm -hmm. in Harlem, and it was yes, a black is. tennis association mm -hmm. beyond the sort of PAL um, table tennis that she was doing. It was a black tennis organization that helped her to develop in her career. And so I just want to say Harlem is always on the rise and is always nurturing and feeding people. And so I appreciate that this fair gets to be here this year because I think people are also recognizing all of the artists that really have come in and through the um, through Harlem. Uh, and last, I wanna mention, of course, I work for the Schomburg Center as the Associate um, Director of Public Programs and Exhibitions. And it is so important um, in the ways that we think about the archive, one of Tammy Lawson, who is the curator of the Art and Artifacts Division, um, her goal right now is about collecting black women artists because mm -hmm. it's easy for archives and for collections to um, collect men, particularly, or black men, or whomever else. Um, and she really has a focus on that. But what's great about public archives is that this work is accessible to anyone. Right, all you need is your library card and an appointment. And we have more than just art, we have the manuscripts sometimes and other kind of paperwork to help to inform that particular work. And so I just, I just wanna say that for all the artists who might be in here to also think about where your work is going, not just in collectors and private collections, but to think about public archives so that your community um, and others can actually access it and not have to have a, a big project in order to do so. With all that said, Tomorrow we have two more forums, one at two o'clock that is more of a conversation about the archives with an archivist and an artist um, who's being featured at 154 and um, a scholar and researcher who is here for a residency and using the Schomburg's archives and she's out of the UK. And then the final program is a conversation with the curator, Kimberly Gant, 
who uh, has an exhibition opening in October around Jacob Lawrence, and it's about the cross-connections between African Americans and um, African artists sort of realizing their peers uh, in this work in the 1950s and 60s and sort of the cross-cultural connections that were happening at that time. So we'll be right back here at 2 and at 4 o'clock tomorrow, and again, please go over to Harlem Parish if you have not, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you for being here. You're welcome.